0: Well hello there. Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche Podcast. Coming to you this week with episode eleven from my own special little world just north of the Hotel Eve Plaza, adjacent to the overflow parking lot at Sugai Kogan, where life is easy. This episode is titled Okonomiyaki, which comes from the Japanese grilled, how you like. It refers to a savory Japanese pancake, typically full of meaty and vegetal goodness and topped with a special sauce that I've grown quite fond of. This week, I respond to listener requests for content, grilled, as you like it, with special sauce. We've got a segment on skier compaction and one on backcountry leadership followed by special story time where I spin a yarn of a void of backcountry leadership. The skiing is currently awesome in most of the world. That's the state of the pack. If it is not awesome where you are, I encourage ye to flee to a more pleasing locale. I hear there's a wall a-coming, so let's give her while we can. A listener recently asked me to comment on the myths and truths associated with skier compaction. He didn't go much further than that, so I'll give you an easy answer. All myths have some deeper truth at their core, but they are frequently misinterpreted to justify a desired outcome. Whether you take them literally or figuratively or not at all, I think it's fair to say that all the great religious texts stand as some of the most abused messages of all time. Not far behind are the great works of philosophy, political thought, and even science. Any grand notion is eventually subjected to application beyond its original intent. Humans will always bend to truth to suit their own needs. Thus, it stands with skier compaction. The subject is more complex than does it work or does it not. An appropriate tack is examining where... When and how does it work? Ski areas in continental climates have long employed early season compaction techniques to help stabilize basal weaknesses in the snowpack. Though rigorous study is limited, there is ample anecdotal evidence that supports the efficacy of compaction programs when properly executed. Early season boot packing is the gold standard. Aspen Highlands is approaching the 30-year anniversary of their bootpacking program in Highlands Bowl. The goal of these bootpacking programs is usually compaction of a basal facet layer to increase strength and disruption of potential failure planes for the purpose of inhibiting failure propagation. It works, but it's really only a valid technique for incipient, persistent problems. Weak layers that are not yet deeply buried. I have personally seen a radical reduction in triggered deep slab avalanches following the implementation of a boot packing program. However, you gotta do it right. Packing needs to be comprehensive and it needs to affect all the layers. Otherwise, you're just adding complexity. Skier compaction can make a big difference, but it's not as effective as boot packing. How many slopes see comprehensive skier compaction all the way to the ground? If there is a layer that you're not penetrating, you're leaving a problem. Compaction creates its own strong layer that can bridge deeper weaknesses until it can't, or you stray from the compacted area. Ski areas get away with a lot because of this. They're able to pound their terrain wall to wall and periodically test the strength with explosives. It's a good system, until you roll into a spring diurnal cycle and meltwater undermines your strong layer. Ski areas, fine. But what about the backcountry and side country? I'm pretty sure that's what my interlocutor, inter, interlocutor, interlo. I'm pretty sure that's what the dude that asked me the question was wondering about. In fact, he specifically used the word side country and referenced Berthed Pass, a popular Colorado destination. Quite the deductive wizard, ain't I? Depending on your perspective, I was either surfing the internet to confirm my pre existing beliefs, or I was conducting research to reduce my uncertainty and gather evidence to support an evolving position. Whatever you want to call it, I came upon a paper from the 2016 International Snow Science Workshop entitled The Effects of Compaction Methods on Snowpack Stability. Well, That's mighty handy, I thought. I was there for that conference, but clearly I was not, shall we say, fully present. Imagine my titillation when the paper confirmed my pre-existing beliefs. Nothing titillates like the confirmation of belief. That's why we seek it out, at the expense of other evidence. I'll put a link up on the Facebook page for you all. It's actually quite far from titillating, but I like to say that word, obviously. The paper by Sally Hendricks, Berkland, Challenger, and Leonard, not a law firm, drew a critical distinction between different types of compaction, specifically boot compaction versus ski compaction versus skiing. Boot compaction is the boot packing we were talking about before. Ski compaction is systematically sidestepping terrain, and skiing is just skiing, but it's what most people mean when they say skier compaction. When we talk about skier compaction here, we're just talking about skiing. And maybe that's a good point to dwell on. Backcountry skiing is not a reliable or demonstrably valid technique for reducing instability. It's just skiing. And it is the least effective form of mechanical compaction. Except perhaps for speed flying or spitting on facets. So my short answer, when someone asks if skier compaction makes the side country safer, is no. Perceptions that it does actually lead to increases in risky behavior. Now I know some of you are shaking your heads and thinking, poppycock, hogwash, and balderdash. Also, fun words to say. We could quibble semantics, but I'll define side country as backcountry terrain that sees very high skier traffic. If you're frequent a ski area with popular gated access or a roadside happy danger park like Teton Pass, you've probably observed how those high traffic areas behave differently than the paths less traveled. I'm not disagreeing, but if you say skier compaction makes those places safer, I say horse shit. It's more complex than that. Let's start at the beginning. How much facet surfing is it going to take to achieve significant compaction? How certain can you be of uniform and full penetration compaction? Are you really even compacting? When I ski in November, the last thing I want to do is compact, I want to float. I want to glide over all those gnarly rocks and logs and stumps like a happy little butterfly with coffee breath. I'm riding at least 120 underfoot, or maybe even 138. Maybe you're compacting, or base packing I'm not. I don't think skier traffic in avalanche paths is providing notable stabilization of basal weak layers. Certainly it's not in broad start zones. More likely, it is locally and chaotically compacting a layer above that weakness. Shielding it, so to speak. What about surface whore and near-surface facet layers? Can they be effectively stirred up or stomped down by skier traffic? That's a much better question. I can't see why not. I could also go back to school, get a medical degree, and cure cancer. Huzzah! Good idea, right? Probably? Not going to happen. You like my straw man? The anecdotal evidence of skiers disrupting a surface hole or near surface facet layer in a manner sufficient to reduce future instabilities is mixed at best, not to be trusted. You may get disruption in the areas immediately adjacent to a skier gate or the top of a common access point, but as you move from that point, the effect will rapidly diminish and it will be difficult or impossible to track the distribution of any gains that might be had. You're dealing more with an increase in uncertainty than a reliable decrease in likelihood. And that's some rank-thin gruel to be dipping your decisions in. Storm slab? Wind slab? Nope and nope. Not buying it. You could argue that skier traffic leads to an irregular snow surface that makes sheer failure less likely. Go ahead. Unless your argument includes the words controlled, peer-reviewed study, I'm just not buying it. Wet slab? No. The failure mechanism makes compaction irrelevant. Well then, what about the apparent gains in stability we see in heavily trafficked backcountry terrain? At the risk of providing an opinion unsupported by rigorous testing or evidence, which is my forte, I'll say simple. You have a two-part mechanism. Part one is the shield generator. All that skier traffic is building a potentially stronger mid-pack layer that is better able to support the weakness underneath, until it doesn't, or you find a thin spot in that shield. Part B, the more relevant factor, is the army of volunteer stability testers that attack that terrain every day. If there is a weakness, they will usually find it, and they will probably find it fast. Fortunately, these trigger-happy hordes often pop instabilities before they develop large destructive potential. That is the foundation of avalanche hazard mitigation triggering lots of small avalanches to reduce the likelihood of large ones. That is why popular BC locales are rife with near-miss stories. Yet despite the swarming mitigators, hazard and uncertainty remain. And that's why people continue to die at popular out-of-bounds destinations. And that's my two cents. Feel free to call me out on it. Every place is unique. I'm willing to change my mind. But where some see skier compaction leading to enhanced stability, I tend to see epicenters of near-miss events and avalanche fatalities. And I would rather steer clear of that junk show. If you're new here, I should explain that I've dedicated a considerable amount of time to explaining how the deck is stacked against us when we travel in avalanche country. It's not because danger lurks around every corner. It's because we humans are naturally poor communicators, and observers, and assessors, and collaborators. We have the capacity to excel at all of these things but we are naturally really good at expending the least possible effort in the name of getting what we want. That is one of our primary strengths. Perhaps even one of the guiding features of our evolution. Point and click. If you look at it over the vast span of human history, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's worked, so far. Maybe the bugs will crash us eventually but they haven't yet. If you look at it from the perspective of the poor guy that got smoked because he made some bad decisions in the pursuit of powder, it's a problem right here and right now. For we skiers, our mind is our greatest asset, yet it is also riddled with code that can lead to systemic failure. Lately, I've been getting a lot of questions about leadership. If we are so prone to veering off course, it makes sense that we should focus on leadership as a mechanism of guiding the ship through the shoals. This is a simpler matter in operational settings where leadership is formalized. Do you remember the leadership responsibilities I listed in the Backcountry Teamwork episode? Uh, hello? (sighs) I've worked my fingers to the bone for you, and it's like you just don't care. Nah, you get more slack than that. I'm not sure I remember them either. Planning, oversight, example. Yeah, I, I remember them. That wasn't so hard, but there's some important meat in that triple stack. Mostly it's in the planning part, where I talked about the importance of shared notions of goals and priorities, roles and responsibilities. I reduced oversight to the need for reassessment. And I defined example as walking the walk, leading by example. There's a lot more to leadership than was in my four minute soundbite, believe it or not. So let's unpack that and see what other goodies we can find. These concepts become increasingly relevant as group size increases and group familiarity with each other decreases. Sure, you can have problems in a group of two friends, but when you get up to four or five, even groups that damn well ought to know better start failing. If you go skiing with some dude you just picked up off the street, I'd take the time to learn where he's coming from. Have you ever considered the notion of the unwilling or the unknowing leader? I've been both. The first one is maddening because you just want to chill and have everybody pull their own weight, but they are all looking to you for the decisions. You can either accept that burden, or challenge the group to contribute more. Either way, it means more work for the unwilling leader. And that's a bummer. The unknowing leader just cruises along doing his or her thing, assuming that everyone else is engaged in the process. But often they're not. They're looking for cue and insight and guidance from the unknowing leader. An offhand remark may be taken as gospel, and next thing you know, we actually are nuking North Korea. That makes me nervous. Because I see now that often I am the unknowing leader. And it ain't no superpower. The other day, a friend of mine said that everyone around here, quote really tries to step up their game when they ski with me. I laughed. No, he said. I'm serious. I know I do. Jesus Christ, I thought. Don't I ever get to punch out? I'm glad he said it, though, because it made me realize how much more aware I need to be of my words and action when I ski with less experienced or less familiar people. Maybe they think I actually know what I'm doing. I've gotten a lot better at slipping into guide mode when I'm in a bigger or less experienced or less familiar group. I'll proactively initiate discussion and ask direct questions. It's not that hard. Just a little conversation is usually enough to reveal whether people are looking at you to make decisions or if they're willing to be actively involved in the process. And that brings us to followership. You ever heard of that? Maybe not. I made it up but I'm sure somebody else thought of it first. Even if you're not comfortable leading, you can be a good follower by simply engaging. Engagement. That's really all it takes. Ask some questions, voice some opinions. Make sure you get it. Don't be a bobblehead. If you lack the confidence to voice an opinion, turn it into a question. Mm, is hucking onto a broad, unsupported slope like that riskier than skiing that sweet-looking cool over there? Maybe ditch the sarcasm and provocative tone. If you're following, ask yourself if your leader is unwilling, or unknowing, or even qualified. The expert halo can be placed on people that have no business wearing it. Don't do that. And if you find someone doing it to you, cast thy halo off. I am eager to embrace my ignorance when it presents itself. Because I'm more concerned with having fun and making good decisions than how much people think I know. Self-esteem should come from the inside. If you think I'm a simpleton, well, hopefully I'll have no problems exceeding expectations. And I will certainly use your expectations to maximize my own entertainment. Calliope sent me a fermented message the other day. I pulled the same thing on her. Deep fermented ruminations that must be vented. It included musings on the role of professionals in peer groups when they're backcountry skiing. I've got partners that know I'm just Doug. There are other people I ski with that think I have special powers. It's easier when you ski with people you know well, but when you ski with people you don't know so well, you should wonder, what kind of baggage might they be expecting us to carry? Finally, there is the void of leadership. This is the group without any hint of team at all. I see it most often in large groups with a lot of experience that don't often ski together in large groups. Complete lack of leadership can lead to creeping exposure, lack of communication, foolish risk acceptance, famine, trade war, and eternal damnation. If you find yourself in this position, step up. Even a follower's voice can marshal leadership. Often all it takes is a well-timed, eh, whiskey tango foxtrot. Over. I had a pair of direct questions on backcountry leadership. How can a leader facilitate communication and engage the rest of the group in decision-making? And if we find ourselves in the leader role, how do we ensure we're soliciting information and feedback from the group? Communication questions both. At the risk of being flippant, just do it. Don't be afraid to solicit input and opinions. I'll usually start with some kind of open-ended question. What do you uh, think of this year's special spicy chutney? If that gets just a vacant shrug or a dull nod or a mumbling duh, that will probably irritate me a little bit. If someone says they honestly don't know or are unsure, that's cool. That's an invitation to dig deeper into the subject. But failure to engage at all is probably going to piss me off. I am not your guide unless I offer or you are paying me to be. I'll transition to polite but direct assertion. This is how I see the special spicy chutney. What do you think of my vision? I invite critique. Invite people to disagree. Disagree. Critical discourse is a sign of healthy decision-making. If I'm still met with a lack of engagement, I'm probably already thinking I'd never want to ski with that person again. I have no interest in carrying sheep on my back. If they engage, that's great. We can work with ignorance, but apathy is a recipe for repeating failure. Despite the aggressive chutney posture I just laid out, I encourage vulnerable leadership in the backcountry. Sometimes you have to lay down the law, but do be careful with the salt. Not many can pull it off, and if you can't, it will make the situation worse. And I'll leave it at that for now. You can always hit me up at avalanchepodcast at if you want to hear more on the subject. Remember what I said about small group leadership being a shared responsibility. Everyone should be pulling their weight. If someone can't, you're not just a leader, you're a teacher. They go hand in hand. I've spent years skiing on my own terms, learning lessons the hard way and exploring the boundaries of what I could do and determining what levels of danger and exposure I could tolerate. I would not possess a fraction of what expertise I do were it not for passing through this gauntlet. Many of the lessons came hard and I'm lucky to not have fared worse. In some instances, those that followed me are also lucky to not have fared worse. At times, I've been an unknowing, a reluctant, and an unwilling leader all in the same day. This tale is one of those times. Las is an Epiphany and a Curse. In the days of yore, while I built professional experience in the Northern Hemisphere, I spent my summers in Las Lenas building personal experience and skiing for myself. The idea that anyone might look to me for leadership was not something I really even considered. But some did. I used to ski a lot with my buddy Fessick. I tried to keep a low profile because Lenas was the kind of place where people were dying to latch on to someone who knew where they were going and what they were doing. And we most certainly knew those things. So I was evasive. Where are you going skiing tomorrow, Doug? You got a plan? Eh, not really. I'll probably head over that way somewhere. Maybe up high. I'd casually gesture at the mountains to our west. Take a pull off my beer or look away and hope they didn't press. We got after it one night. I don't remember specifically, but I know there was a lot of Frenet and meat firing mad asado and sipping Fernandos like Mongols on spring break. Life was good, till the morning. The morning was spike in the head painful, but the skies were blue, the winds were calm, and the lifts were running, so it was time to go hunting. Fezzik and I came up with a plan to hit a big couloir down valley. We'd skied it last year, not super familiar terrain, but we'd figure it out. In the base area, we bumped into Latka, who joined us. He's an old friend with great mountain skills. A solid addition to our group. He also missed the Mongol spring break the night before, so that was probably a good thing. At the top of the lift, the the Minghan grew once again. Technically, a Minghan is a thousand Mongol soldiers. Obviously, we were less, so apologies if there are any persnickety kara. Goromonians in the audience. Our local buddy Tecumseh wanted to join and he had a friend with him. Somebody said okay. We may have picked up another, I really don't recall. I was mostly focused on beginning the physical effort that I would use to purge the toxins from my body. So we hammered across the plateau and up to the ridge and along the ridge and down the ridge and up the ridge. Skins on, skins off, boot packing, ski down, skins on. It's fairly involved. Heads down, mouth shut. Maybe took us a couple hours. I forget how far it is. It's a complex ridge system that is surpassed by the complexity of the cool water systems that drop from its flanks. I spent the better part of ten seasons decoding that zone, and it still holds mysteries. As we approach the top of what I think is our intended line, it finally occurs to me that two to three members of our party are probably physically exhausted and have no idea of where they are going, or maybe even how they got here. I'm mulling over this unfortunate scenario when Fezzik drops in. (laughs) Well, tarnation, I will be hornswoggled if I'm going to drive this stage solo all the way to Calamity Junction. So I give Fezzik a healthy lead, and then I drop in behind him. And latka he's no fool. He does the same thing for me. At this point, the perils of blindly following have probably become apparent to our other cohorts, and I imagine them rushing to get their gear on and follow Latka as quickly as they are capable of. But meanwhile, back in the couloir, I see that Fesik has stopped. So I peel off to the side and post up, and Latka does the same up higher, behind me. I make voice contact with Fesik. What's up? It's a cliff, he shouts back. Eh. That is most unfortunate. Can you get around it? I think so. Give me a minute. Vesic susses the scene and finds an exit, so I ski down to him and Laka bumps to the position I was holding. I can see some tiny faces stopped, peering down at us from higher in the couloir. Yeah, it's a cliff, sure enough. Big, rolling sucker. Last year, you could pilot a battleship through this couloir. This year? Cliff. Vesec's exit strategy involves teetering on a small pinnacle of rock at the edge of the cliff, removing skis, and scrambling along the edge to a small notch that allows us to escape to the next couloir over. I commence the ski-removing, teetering-on-the-edge maneuver and am not entirely pleased with it. There is many a slip, twixt the cup and lip. Latka yells down. Does it go? It goes, I reply. You could make it. I don't think the others should come down here. Latka accepts the sandbag with consummate grace. He stuffs it in his pack and prepares to boot pack back out of the couloir. We've got quite the choose-your-own-adventure accident case study shaping up so far. Fezzik and I group up in the couloir next door, and we ski powder to the valley floor and commence our vigil. We're good. It's difficult to see from a thousand meters below, but we occasionally get glimpses of the posse making their way back up. Progress is slow, real slow, and I am growing increasingly concerned. We've been watching for a long time when a truck pulls up along the side of the road and a woman and a child get out. They watch us for a bit and eventually come running up. The woman erupts in a stream of hysterical Spanish and thrusts a radio forward, so one of us grabs the radio and says, Hello? Ah, just a minute, replies the thick accent. I give you to Latka. Latka's voice comes crying over the radio. Oh my god, we're all gonna And he trails off into a peal of hysterical laughter. And that makes me feel better. The situation is in hand. They are almost at the top of their up route and will be descending an adjacent line. Apparently the mystery man who accompanied Tecumseh had never been backcountry skiing before. And he was pretty sure he was gonna die. So he called his wife and she showed up with a radio to match the one he had in his pack. Guess he wanted to say goodbye to his little boy, too. Go figure. I did not see that one coming. The bedraggled group finally appears on the apron as dusk is drifting into dark, and there is a joyous family reunion. We catch a ride back to the base area in the mystery man's truck and resume our Mongol spring break activities. So, where's the pony? Well, I guess the perils of blindly following another should be pretty apparent from this tale. If you have a shred of conscience, you'll also recognize the dangers of unknowing and unwilling leadership. Clearly, there was at least one person that felt following us was a safe option. Tecumseh so should have known better. Following us is frequently a very not safe option. Any one of us, me, Fessik or Latka, could have short-circuited this whole descending spiral at any time with a few short words. But we didn't. Because of the spikes in the head, and because we didn't realize we were leaders. And when we did, we didn't want to be leaders. It's rare that ignorance or refusal to accept reality will contribute to the solution of a blooming problem. However, it's mighty common for an apparently small problem to grow and morph and eventually consume far more than was anticipated. So, that's something to chew on the next time somebody says, Hey, can I go skiing with you? Well, how do you like them apples? Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoy the show, I encourage you to subscribe to Slide, the Avalanche podcast. If you do not enjoy the show, may I recommend potato chips. Everybody loves potato chips. As always, the music this week is provided by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Emotional support is provided by the Avalanche Review and DPS Skis, fueling the reverence for mountains, storms, and the people who sculpt deep powder culture to all of you who provide me with feedback and encouragement, and even to all of you who nod silently, hoping that someone else will lead the way. Thank you. Pray for snow.